Close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow. I'll miss you. Remember, I'll always be true. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 16th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Mill. The title of today's podcast is Oh My Love It. Vitamin C won't work for you. And again, a excellent example of the fact that I can't sing. Okay, so our guest skeptic today, Dr. Salim Razai. He completed his medical school training at Texas A&M Health Science Center and continued his medical education with a combined emergency medicine internal medicine residency at East Carolina University. Currently, Salim works as a community emergency physician at Greater San Antonio Emergency Physicians, where he is the director of clinical education. Salim is also the creator and founder, and I have to say, Salim, one of the best FOMED sites out there, Rebel EM and RebelCast, a free critical appraisal blog and podcast that tries to cut down knowledge translation gaps of research to bedside clinical practice. Welcome back to the SGEM, Salim. Ken, it's been too long. Thanks for having me. And you're just far too kind. You're giving me too much credit. I think there's a lot of us out there trying to do good things in medicine and trying to kind of push the needle forward in terms of patient care. So I appreciate everything that you do. I'm always learning from you. And uh, I don't know what I would do without the SGEM. Well, I see these papers pop up and I go, oh, I've got to get Salim back on the show because you you have been there. This is season number 10. You have been there through this whole journey supporting, you know, the skeptic's guide, critical appraisal, evidence-based medicine, and the whole FOMED movement. So you're one of the originators. So I really appreciate you coming back and I look forward to more episodes in the future. Absolutely. And one thing I didn't send you is that for the last year and a half, I've actually been splitting my time between the ED and the ICU now. And so this paper is very fitting both in the ED setting and the ICU setting. Well, it is. So let's get to a case that can set the table for our discussion and critical appraisal. So a 59-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with fever, tachycardia, and hypotension. She's found to have a urinary tract infection, and she's requiring vasopressor therapy, intravenous fluids, and intravenous antibiotics. She's admitted to the intensive care unit for septic shock, and the ICU team is considering using vitamin C therapy for this patient. Well, Dr. Paul Merrick got the critical world all excited a few years ago when he claimed that there was this vitamin C cocktail, which contained vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine as a possible cure, a cure for sepsis. Now, his position was based in part on a retrospective study, it was a before and after study, that he conducted at his own hospital. Now, Ken, you did a structured critical appraisal of that Dr. Merrick's observational study. I believe it was SGEM number 174. And there have been a slew of people in the FOMED and emergency medicine world, skeptics commenting about the validity of that study. The bottom line on the SGEM, if I remember correctly, is that vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine was associated with lower mortality and severe sepsis and septic shock patients in this one small, single-centered, retrospective before and after study, but causation has yet to be demonstrated. 
Yeah, there were so many key words in there, right? Because it was an observational study, we could only, only conclude that there was an association. And really, we needed more evidence to accept the claim that this could potentially be a cure for sepsis. But the research didn't stop there, and we also did an episode looking at a systematic review and meta-analysis of using vitamin C in adult critically ill patients or cardiac surgery patients, and that was SGEM 268. And while there were several limitations, which there often are to studies, the bottom line was there still was not enough evidence back then to support the routine use of vitamin C in critically ill patients. Now, I think it's good that we create hypotheses and study them. And one of the pathophysiologic bases for why we use vitamin C is that it could be beneficial in critically ill patients like those with sepsis. Vitamin C can potentially mitigate tissue injury induced by oxidative stress, but it can't be synthesized by humans. Vitamin C levels are typically low in critically ill patients, and it's a reasonable hypothesis that we could be correcting these levels. You could have a patient-oriented outcome of benefit. But that's why we do research. Before accepting this claim, this pathophysiologic basis of net benefit, it needs to be demonstrated in high-quality evidence. Yeah, and that gets to sort of a more meta point in sort of the history of medicine. How many times are we going to fool ourselves and be these early adopters and start doing um, interventions and therapies based on a pathophysiologic principle? Again, it can be hypothesis generating, but before we start rolling it out widely and coming up with quality metrics and payment linked to it, maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, maybe we should have some high quality evidence that demonstrates a patient-oriented outcome. And there, there is a, a section of the medical literature that talks about normalizing numbers. So normalizing blood pressures, normalizing sugar levels, normalizing X, Y, and Z. And there are multiple examples of, yeah, just because you have an abnormal level doesn't mean correcting that number or that level will actually result in an improved patient outcome. And, and since uh, those studies that we've been talking about uh, have been published, there's been multiple other studies. And you, you made a great table for this. And we're going to put that in the show notes. So there have, been a, there have been multiple studies conducted and published looking at vitamin C as a potential treatment in this patient population. And one randomized control trial, Citrus Alley, using a higher dose of vitamin C, and that higher dose was 50 milligrams per kilogram every six hours, reported a lower 28-day risk of death compared to those randomly allocated to placebo. Now, this outcome, however, was one of 46 secondary outcomes. So this was not the primary outcome of the study. So again, hypothesis generating, but there's been no other study that has reported a statistical difference in the objective measure of mortality. And again, great table that you put together. We'll put that in the show notes. What's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's SGEM episode? So in adult patients with sepsis in the ICU on vasopressor therapy, does vitamin C reduce the risk of death or persistent organ dysfunction at 28 days compared to placebo? And the reference for us? Is Lamontane F. et al., 
intravenous vitamin C in adults with sepsis in the intensive care unit, New England Journal of Medicine, 2022. And this trial was called the Love It trial. So let's run through the PCOT statement. So what was the population? So these were adult patients, 18 years of age and older, admitted to the ICU in less than 24 hours with proven or suspected infection as the main diagnosis and receiving vasopressor therapy. And then the main exclusions were contraindications to vitamin C therapy, receiving open-label vitamin C therapy, or if the patient was expected to die or have withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy within the next 48 hours. But you have to go to the supplemental index to get this long list of other exclusions. What was the intervention? So they used that higher dose of vitamin C in this study from Citrus Ali, which actually is one of the highest vitamin C doses used in any of the studies, which is 50 milligrams per kilogram. It was an infusion mixed in 50 cc's of 5% dextrose solution given every six hours for up to 96 hours. And what did they compare this to? So matching placebo, which was 5% dextrose in water or normal saline infused every six hours for up to 96 hours. And let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome? Oh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this. It was a composite outcome, Ken. It was a composite of death or persistent organ dysfunction, which they defined as the use of vasopressors, invasive mechanical ventilation, or new renal replacement therapy all the way up to day 28. Yeah, you like that. It's almost a composite of a composite because death (laughs) is singular, right? It's binary, but then they have persistent organ failure. And then that is sort of a composite or defined multiple ways, you know, vasopressin, are they still vented or they, do they need renal replacement? So it's a composite of a composite potentially. All right. How about the key? Cause there was multiple, I think there was about 15, but key secondary outcomes. Yeah, it was number of days without organ dysfunction in the ICU up to day 28 and at six months. All right. What kind of trial was this? So it was a phase three multi-center randomized placebo controlled trial. Many words we like to see when we're evaluating studies. All right. So the author's conclusions from the abstract was, quote, in adults with sepsis receiving vasopressor therapy in the intensive care unit, those who received intravenous vitamin C had a higher risk of death or persistent organ dysfunction at 28 days than those who received placebo, end of quote. All right, let's run through the quality checklist for RCTs. First question, Salim, um, are these emergency department patients we're focusing on? No, this was an ICU population. The patients, were they adequately randomized? Yes, I believe so. When you look through the methods and how they went about randomization. Did they conceal that process of randomization? Yeah, it appears they did a good job with that as well. And did they do an intention to treat analysis? Yes. And the study patients, do you think they were recruited consecutively? It's on, I'm unsure, Ken, like it's, it's hard to say because they say that they did, but when you look through their little kind of algorithm of how they went through patients, there were 528 eligible patients that ended up not being enrolled for various reasons. So it's unclear if this is a consecutive sample or a convenient sample. Yeah, because it could, it could sort of 
you know, introduce a little bit of selection bias, depending on, you know, how objective and explicit the reasons were for excluding patients. All right. The sixth question, were patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yeah, they did a nice job making sure patients were pretty well balanced between groups. And how did they do on the blinding? Was everybody unaware of group allocation? Yep. They did a nice job and they even, their placebo was a blinded placebo. So I think they did a nice job. And were all groups treated equally except for this intervention? So if you read the paper, they would make you think yes. And I'm going to say unsure here. So I can tell you that for things like glucocorticoid therapy, mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy, need for vasopressor therapy, those were similar between groups. But what about all the other aspects of care that are performed in our septic and shock patients? Like how much fluids did each group get? What antibiotics were used? Were the antibiotics appropriate? I don't have any of that information. I couldn't find it in the supplement or in the main paper. So I'm going to say unsure. And after some recent SGEM episodes, not only the amount of fluid, but what type of fluid? Because that's been bantered around for decades in emergency medicine. All right. Uh, the follow-up, was it complete? Yes, it was greater than 90%. They did a great job. And do you think that they focused on all the patient-important outcomes? I believe they did, yes. And the treatment effect, was it large enough and really precise enough to be clinically significant? Yeah, and we'll talk about this in the nerdy section. I think the answer is no here. Um, they needed approximately 50% of patients to be at risk of death at 28 days or persistent organ dysfunction in the control group to achieve an 80% power to detect an absolute between group difference of 10%. When you look at the hard numbers, the actual occurrence of this was only 38.5% in the control group. So this is much smaller than what they predicted. Yeah, we can dig into that a little bit more once we get into the talk nerdy section. But you know what? You, you make your best guess, your best estimate, your educated guess, whatever you want to call it to do this power calculation. But once you've run the study, the data is what the data is. All right. And the final question, and this is something new that I've asked, is how about financial conflicts of interest? Were there any? I don't think so. It was funded by Lott and John Hecht Memorial Foundation. Nova Biomedical Canada provided glucometers, testing strips, and control solutions to the trial sites that requested them. And it doesn't look like they had any input in terms of data analysis, data acquisition, and the write-up of the final manuscript. All right, let's dig into the results then. They enrolled and analyzed 863 patients, pretty evenly split between the vitamin C group and the placebo group. The mean age was 65 years. Almost two-thirds were male patients, and 83% were medical admissions. Now, almost all of the patients, and what I mean by that is 97%, so almost all of the patients received at least 90% of the scheduled doses of vitamin C or placebo. The median length of stay in the ICU was six days and 16 days for length of stay in the hospital. But let's get to the key result. What was the key result? So the key result here was there was no superiority of vitamin C over placebo for the primary outcome. Yeah, and it wasn't even a lack of superiority. It was actually a bit worse. But we're going we're gonna to go through that when we talk about some of the numbers. 
All right, let's talk some numbers here. And I'm going to remind everybody, the primary outcome was this composite or composite of death or persistent organ dysfunction on day 28. So, Salim, what were the actual numbers? So this was the eye-opener is vitamin C actually did worse. It was 44.5% for the patients that got vitamin C. It was 38.5% for the patients that got placebo. And Ken, before you talk about the statistics and you do the mind jujitsu on us, this is the first study showing harm. And this is what a lot of us have been saying in the past is that there's this potential of harm when you do things and you don't see benefit. And so this is the first one that's showing us that. Yeah, with every intervention we do, there's always a potential benefit and a potential harm. And we've got to be looking at that net impact. And in this case, a higher number, a higher percentage represents badness because the outcome is this composite of death or persistent organ dysfunction, two things you know our patients probably do not want. And so vitamin C did worse at a higher absolute percentage than that of placebo. Now you can convert that into a risk ratio and the risk ratio to receiving vitamin C was 1.21. And if you look at the 95% confidence interval, it was statistically significant because it didn't cross the line of one or no difference. That means all of that 95%, that point estimate was actually favoring placebo because the risk ratio was worse. It was worse with vitamin C. So all of the 95% confidence interval was also on the one side. But let's, let's break that composite apart because you could argue that death or persistent organ dysfunction would be interpreted differently by patients. So when you look at death, how about just death alone as one of the secondary outcomes? Yeah, so there was numerically a trend toward more death in the patients that got vitamin C, 35.4% compared to placebo, which was 31.6%. Yeah. And so that gave you that risk ratio of 1.17, meaning that vitamin C was worse with regards to death, but the 95% confidence interval did just drift over that uh, point of no difference. How about persistent organ dysfunction? Also, there was a trend toward worsened outcomes with vitamin C numerically. So vitamin C was 9.1%. And for patients who got placebo, it was 6.9%. And so for the risk ratio, the point estimate was larger. It was 1.3, but the 95% confidence interval was much wider. So it was a little fuzzier, like we're less certain about that one. All right. I've been waiting to do this with you, Salim. I love talking nerdy. Let's do it. So we're going to go through five points. The first one was about this composite outcome of unequal value. And I sort of teased about that when we were talking about the primary outcome. And, you know, we understand why researchers will often create a composite outcome to help ensure that the trial is powered well enough and some things are easier to measure, and then you can put them into a composite outcome and make that target bigger. However, when the outcomes included in the composite outcome are unequal or unequal value to the patient, it can make it more difficult from a clinical standpoint to know what to do with that information. And I still remember one of my evidence-based medicine mentors who is also a legend 
of emergency medicine, Dr. Jerry Hoffman, used to say, oh, yes, you know, you've got the composite outcome of death and severe neurologic disease and blah, 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 and a paranychia. And he always used that to try to <laughs> emphasize, make sure you look at the composite outcome to make sure there's not somebody didn't sneak in paranychia and it's paranychia that's driving or some not as important outcome that's driving the overall metric. So the second nerdy point I want to talk about is reproducibility of results. And, you know, Ken, I think you and I both worry that when we expend so much finite time, money, effort, researching a topic that's been consistently reproduced as not beneficial. This is what we dream about in EBM, right? It's not just RCTs that are done well methodologically, but it's reproducibility of results. And I think we've definitely gotten that with vitamin C. We probably should have stopped studying this four trials ago. And as Professor Altman so eloquently stated years ago, we need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons. Yes, it's more difficult to prove a negative, but at some point we have to recognize that there just may not be utility in investigating it further. The time, the money, and valuable patient volunteers I think they should be utilized to investigate other potential therapies, and we should have probably done this long ago. Yeah, I think I think this gets to a bigger issue of academic promotion and doing research just for the sake of getting a citation and getting something on your CV and being able to be promoted rather than saying, you know what, let's come up with good questions and design the studies with high quality methods to answer those important questions rather than just doing research after research after research project for maybe not the best reasons. But I'm going to get to nerdy point number three, and that's about consecutive sample or convenient sample. And we talked about this when we were doing the checklist. They assessed over 2,200 patients for eligibility into the study, and 872 ultimately underwent randomization. However, there was this other 528 patients who were eligible, but weren't enrolled for various reasons. This is over half the sample size included. Additionally, studies recruited from 35 different ICUs over a time period of almost three years. And this makes us unsure whether it was really a consecutive sample and if some selection bias may have been introduced into this trial. Yeah, you always got to wonder when you don't include everybody that was potentially eligible, how much regression to the mean you would get or how much of a worsened or betterment of outcome you would get. You'd like to see that all those people were included, but unfortunately not the case here. The other part of that, Salim, is when you get publications like this, and maybe not necessarily this publication, maybe a publication that shows potential benefit, and then they roll this out in the wild, as I say, and it's not as strictly done as a research project, and you don't have as many resources, and you get a lot of protocol violators and a lot of indication creep, you really don't know, right? You really don't know. You have to say, what did they actually do here? right? And then how would it be applied? And that's why it's nice if you have, you know, you have a lot of critically ill patients with sepsis, how does vitamin C play a role? That's what we really want to know. Does it have a net patient-oriented benefit? 
Nerdy point number four. So I had some issues with some of the assumptions made prior to this study, Ken. So the authors state that in the control group, and I already said this when we were going through the checklist, but you would need to be at risk of death at 28 days or persistent organ dysfunction in the control group of approximately 50% to achieve an 80% power to detect an absolute between group difference of 10%. And I've already said the control group in terms of that primary outcome, that only occurred in 38.5%. The assumption made by the authors is they did this based off the Merrick retrospective before and after study done in 2017. And I think this is a flawed assumption because since that study, there've been multiple RCTs that show a 10% difference between groups is probably just too big. And the point I'm getting at here is, should the difference they were looking for have been smaller? In a disease that affects thousands worldwide, even a 3% decrease could be clinically meaningful. Yeah. And you could change that sentence into millions worldwide because sepsis is such a big deal around the world. And so a small, right, a single digit percentage in something as important as mortality could make a big difference. The problem is with this is we can't conclude that vitamin C doesn't work. That's not how these studies are designed. They were You know, you start with the null hypothesis and then you go out to demonstrate a superiority study. In this case, that's how this was designed. And when you don't demonstrate superiority based on what you do, then you accept the null hypothesis. But that's different than saying vitamin C does not work or could not work. And I think that's that's probably an important distinction. And that's probably why uh, when we get to our sort of bottom line and how we're going to apply it, uh, you'll understand that a bit better. But the fifth and final point in the nerdy section was just to talk about subgroup analyses. In the patients with COVID-19 in this study, there was a trend towards vitamin C having a benefit compared to patients without COVID-19. However, the problem with subgroup analyses is they can be really misleading. They should be thought of as hypothesis generating. The more subgroups you investigate, the more likely you are to find a statistically significant difference by chance. And rarely are subgroups actually investigated further to confirm the hypothesis that's generated by looking at a subgroup. And we've mentioned this study before by Wallach et al. in JAMA back in 2017. And they looked at how often a subgroup claims are corroborated by a subsequent randomized control trial and meta-analysis. And uh, I know the number, it was a nice round number on how many times they were actually confirmed. Now, it wasn't studied very often. I think it was about 10% of the time. But in that 10% that actually went ahead and investigated whether it was something there or if it was a nothing burger, turned out the number was 0%. So they concluded that, quote, attempts to corroborate statistically significant subgroup differences are rare, but when done, the initial observed subgroup differences are not reproduced, end of quote. So I think it's an important point. I mean, we're in the middle of this pandemic of COVID-19 and people are looking for all these magical treatments and cures. And so this was one of the subgroup analyses in this study. And what I wanted to emphasize here, what we wanted to emphasize is that be very careful looking at that subgroup and making a bold statement like, well, maybe not all sepsis patients, but in COVID patients, we should be doing it. So I I think it's important for people to understand that it's 
a nice round number, like you said, subgroup analyses have been reproduced 0% of the time. Yeah. And so it's hypothesis generating. And wouldn't it be great if vitamin C could have that kind of impact on COVID-19 patients? But it would need to be demonstrated in a properly designed randomized control trial of just patients with COVID-19 to vitamin C or not vitamin C, and then actually show that it had a clinically important impact. And until that happens, we should go, hey, that was interesting, but certainly shouldn't be a driver of care and quality metrics and, and over-interpreting that literature. But that's enough nerdiness, okay? Let's get on to comment about the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. So we agree with the author's conclusion that in adults with sepsis receiving vasopressor therapy in the ICU, those who receive vitamin C therapy had a higher risk of death or persistent organ dysfunction at 28 days than those who received placebo. All right, now it's time to give the SGEM bottom line. We still don't have high quality evidence to support the routine use of vitamin C in critically ill septic patients. So can you resolve this case that you presented at the beginning of the podcast? So it's decided to not use vitamin C therapy in the patient admitted to the ICU and to continue just good old supportive care with intravenous fluids, vasopressors, and appropriate antibiotics. And now, Salim, how are you going to take, you know, this is another study looking at vitamin C. How are you going to take this one now and apply it in your clinical practice? And you're working in the emergency department, but you're also working in the ICU and taking care of these sick septic patients. Are you going to be using vitamin C? The short answer is no. I mean, I think after the publication of the original Merrick protocol for vitamin C therapy and sepsis, there's just been this slew of RCTs. I think it's eight of them now, including this one, just showing a lack of patient-oriented benefit for vitamin C therapy and sepsis. I think at this time, vitamin C therapy should not be used outside of a randomized clinical trial. But I say that with this caveat, there needs to be a real compelling reason for another RCT to be approved by an ethics committee to overcome the multiple studies failing to report a statistical improvement. And so what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Because that's how you're going to apply it clinically and you're in the ICU. I get that. But talking to the patient, because they may have heard, hey, I, I thought vitamin C could cure sepsis. So what I would say is you may have heard about this therapy called vitamin C in patients who are septic like yourself. And at this time, it just doesn't appear this medication should be used. And actually, in the most recent study, there was some evidence of harm. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Kent Perkins. He knew that the Nobel Prize for the EKG, or ECG as it's said in Australia apparently, was awarded in 1924. So that was the correct answer, and I'll be mailing him out a cool skeptical prize. Salim, what question do you have for this episode? What enzyme do humans lack that does not allow them to synthesize their own vitamin C? Oh, I hope this, does this have something to do with the Krebs cycle? I, I, you know, cause the Krebs cycle is memorize the Krebs cycle, forget the Krebs cycle, memorize the Krebs cycle, forget the Krebs cycle. I hope this isn't part of the Krebs cycle. It's not, but I went all biochemistry on you. Oh, orgo. So if you know the answer, you know the drill. 
send me an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Also, like just give a short shout out to our friends at St. Emlyn's across the Atlantic there. They have also done a blog post on the Love It trial, and I will put a link in the show notes. Salim, so great to work with you again. Ken, thank you so much. It's been too long. We got to do this a little bit more frequently. I always learn something new every time we do this. Will you be attending ASAP this year? Because maybe we could get together and do something live and in person. Unfortunately, I'm not going to make it this year. It's going to be the first one I've missed in a long time. I know we've been doing some of them virtually, but uh, I'm sorry, I won't be there, but I'm happy to do something virtual with you again. Well, I'm happy to fly down. I just want to I just want to hang out with you. So I'm happy to fly down. I've never been to where you live in Texas, and I, I think it would be a fun trip to make someday. So hopefully we can make that happen in the future. Open invitation. But until that does happen, can you read the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. All my love